pay attention to more important things rather than less important things. Is it important whether I've got 100 people reporting to me? Is it important if I've got this title that looks great on my business card? Or is it important that I go to work and I feel stimulated and I laugh? Welcome to the one-year anniversary of Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. Since this show went live one year ago, I've featured people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and make a major career change. We've talked through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you rethink your own career path. For this annual episode of Career Relaunch, my guest is going to share some interesting insights on the drivers of happiness in the workplace. We'll discuss what leads to long-term career satisfaction. Afterwards, I'll share one of my own misguided beliefs about what I thought would make me happy in my career and the realization that got me back on the right track. So today's a very special episode. Before we start the conversation with my guest, I just wanted to announce that Career Relaunch has officially turned one year old today. I'm actually in Barcelona right now hosting a couple personal branding workshops, and this is where I was exactly a year ago when Career Relaunch first went on air. And I remember that moment very vividly because I was staying at this same hotel I'm staying at right now in San Cugat. And that night in September 2016, I actually pulled an all-nighter before a talk I was about to give because we were working out a few bugs to make sure everything was ready for the September 15th launch of the first three podcast episodes. A year and 26 episodes later, the podcast is going strong and there's a loyal listener community. When you launch a podcast, it's kind of weird because you don't really know exactly how many people are listening, if what you're putting out there is good, or if you should even keep it going. So I just wanted to thank you for being a loyal subscriber, and I really appreciate having you as a listener and part of this career relaunch community. I also wanted to take a moment and especially thank the listeners who have taken the time to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or to send me a personal email or voicemail or text message with your feedback. Over the past year, I have listened to and read every single message And I can't tell you how much it means to me to hear from you and how much every single message just gives me another burst of motivation to put out another episode. This all started as a side project and a year into doing this, I have every intention to keep it going and I'm still super excited to release every new episode, including today's. So for today's one year anniversary episode, I'm doing something a little different. Instead of talking with someone about career change, I'm going to explore the drivers of workplace happiness with Bruce Daisley, who's the vice president of Twitter for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Bruce joined Twitter in 2012 after working at Google, where he was responsible for YouTube and display advertising. He's also worked at EMAP, Bauer, and Capital Radio. Previously, New Media Age recognized Bruce as having made the greatest individual contribution to new media in the UK. In 2015, he was voted Individual of the Year in the Drums Social Media Rankings. He's a digital advisor to Comic Relief and a judge in this year's Design Effectiveness Awards. He regularly speaks on the evolution of work culture and hosts a podcast on the subject called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which launched at the start of 2017. During this conversation, Bruce is going to reference a lot of different thought leaders in the area of work culture. So if you want to learn more about anyone he mentions, just go to careerrelaunch.net slash episode 26. Bruce and I spoke in person at the Twitter office in London. 
Well, Bruce, thanks so much for having me here at Twitter in London. I'm very excited to be here and it's exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, thrilled. I'm thrilled to be invited. So I'd love to start by just talking about your role here at Twitter, Bruce. And can you just walk us through exactly what your role is and what you're focused on right now in your career and your life? So the august title for it is that I'm the vice president for EMEA, which is the Middle East, Europe and Africa. And we're trying to grow Twitter as a tool for people to use to discover what's happening in the world. So, you know, we see Twitter as maybe more than ever before, we see it as a news app. So how can we get people to use Twitter in Germany, in France, in Spain, in the Middle East? How can we do that? So that's one way of growing. And the second one is growing our business. So that means, you know, trying to grow our ad revenue and deliver some good performance there. So my role is is trying to spot people who are doing well but need help people who are not doing well and need help or areas where we could do a partnership to go faster. So it's, it's just about trying to add little bursts of energy to the work that's already going on. And from your vantage point, Bruce, what do you think is the most exciting thing that's happening right now for you at Twitter? When you're forced to make a decision, when you can't do both things, it forces you to, to be reflective. So one of the things that we've really done in the last year or so is say, what is Twitter? You know, we're not a place that you go and share holiday photographs. You're not the place that if you're getting married, you post images of that. We're not the place that you share back to school photos. So what is Twitter? And I think we forced ourselves to say, okay, Twitter's a place for news, place for what's happening. And I think what we've found through that is that our audience has really responded well to that. Our audience has been growing incredibly strongly for the last 18 months. By us getting clearer with our thinking, the people who use Twitter have been more responsive to that. And it's a good reminder, actually, the clearer you are with what you're trying to achieve, the more likely you are to achieve it. Now, I know you haven't always been a VP here at Twitter. I was wondering if we could, before we talk about this topic of workplace culture, which I'd love to get your insights on, was wondering if we could go back to your previous roles. And we don't have to go all the way back, but to talk about your time as a director of YouTube at Google. Can you explain how you landed there and then what happened next? Maybe we can work forward from there. I previously worked in a radio and magazine company. I had one stage 100 people reporting into me. I had a fantastic title. Definitely, you know, it would have looked impressive if I'd have turned up at somewhere or other because if I, t- I turned up and flashed my business card, if it was that sort of person, then, you know, it, it would have been impressive. But I was made redundant from there. They, they got taken over and, and they removed a layer of management. So I found myself out of work and deciding what I wanted. And I very nearly went and took a job at MySpace and sort of younger younger listeners won't necessarily know immediately what MySpace was. But MySpace, <laughs> I remember it. Yeah, MySpace was, you know, the future of social media yeah. at one stage. But it was long past that era when I was going to join it. And my friend said to me, oh, they're ruined, aren't they? And I, it made me think and I sat there and I thought, okay, write out a handful of companies you'd love to work at. And then what are the things that would characterize why you wanted to work there? And I ended up taking a job at YouTube that paid less. It wasn't at YouTube, it was at Google. It paid less. There were three people reporting into me and the title was massively reduced from the heights I'd been to. How much did that matter to you Um, that your team had? Not remotely, actually. Okay. Not remotely. Once I'd decided I was going to be happier at this... It didn't occur to me. I guess the things that go through your head is you think, how do I explain this to other people? Hmm. And is there any shame in it? 
Well, I wasn't ashamed in doing it and I was quite excited. The thing that was going through my head was if I joined Google, maybe I could work my way to working on YouTube. And YouTube, I think, is one of the seven wonders of the web. It's like one of the most incredible creations of human invention. And so I thought, wow, if I could work on that, that would be something, even if it's only a project. And so I had a clear goal in mind. I'm not a big status person. I'm not really person who, you know, if I get in a cab even now, or if I'm on holiday and someone asks me where I work, I always say the internet. <laughs> I never tell people where I work. That's interesting. I, I would have thought that someone who has the privilege to work at a place like Google would, or Google or Twitter, they would love name dropping that. I tend to see things like that as things that separate us rather than connect us. Mm, so it's a bit like I grew up in a school. I think I was probably eight and I grew up in a school in inner city Birmingham. And we used to have a map at the start of term and it would be who's been on vacation, who's been on holiday. And everyone had to say if they had three quarters of the class hadn't been on holiday. <laughs> so three quarters of the class left the pin in Birmingham. And then there was someone who'd been to the South Coast, someone who'd been to France. I mean, this was extraordinary. That person got loads of attention. They'd been abroad. People had been to Wales. People had been to different places. And even though I had been on holiday, I left the pin in Birmingham. You know, I didn't want to appear like I was advantaged to them. I think those sort of things are formative. I feel like if I tell people I've got a job that I adore, that I love, that I feel honoured to have... It sort of casts their job in a worse light. Mm. So I just never, I never talk about those things. So as a consequence of that, because I've never felt like anything I've accomplished is a badge of honour, consequently, I don't see if I'd failed as a badge of shame. Before we talk about this topic of culture, I am really interested, how did you get past that concept of these sort of superficial I want to call them societal validators of, I work at a fancy company, I got a fancy title. What sort of mindset do you feel that you have or what do you think people need to have in order to get past some of those? If you read a lot about happiness, that what you tend to find is that specifically material possessions create short-term bursts of happiness, but they don't lead to purposeful happiness. And I think, you know, job descriptions, titles, things like that are exactly the same. That moment you land a job, you feel that burst of adrenalizing energy. Mm -hmm. And of course it dissipates, right? You know, short-term successes. And so I'm not necessarily preoccupied with cars, houses, watches. I don't have any of those things. So Okay, well, let's shift gears and let's talk a little bit about some of the other work that you do, because I know we first crossed paths at the Future of Work conference in London. And aside from your day job at Twitter, you're also focused on the evolution of work culture and what drives happiness in the workplace. And one of the things we talk about on the show is the importance of doing work that aligns with your values. And you wrote a really interesting article on LinkedIn earlier this year about whether the culture of our workplaces can make us happier. So I'd love to just touch on a couple themes which you cover in your own podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which we're definitely going to talk about at the end and come back to, about work culture. And the first one is about friends and flow. And you talked with Richard Reeves, the author of Happy Mondays, and this concept of having a close personal friend being really important in the workplace. What's important about that? In this season of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, I chatted to a woman called Emma Seppler, and she's 
She's from Stanford University. She's currently at secondment at Yale. And she writes a lot for the Harvard Business Review. And one of the things that she's observed in one of her most recent articles is that half of all people feel exhausted by work. And it's gone up by 30% in, in the last 20 years. And in addition, people feel incredibly lonely at work. You know, the loneliness... Uh, is a strong correlate with just the sense of feeling overwhelmed and, and exhausted at work. And I think we can recognise all those things. You know, we, we tend to talk less at work. There was a brilliant thing by a Financial Times columnist called Lucy Kellaway, and she's she's turned a lot of her columns into podcasts. And one of them is she observed she's just left being a full-time columnist to become a school maths teacher. And in a reflective mode, she said during her 30 years in the Financial Times, she's observed the volume of chat in the office has reduced substantially. Hmm. And so the interesting thing for her was that, okay, so chat has gone down and that seems emotionally, instinctively to be a bad thing. But then if you overlay it with any science, there's a guy called Alex Pentland from the the MIT and, and, and he has observed that the most creative environments are the ones where there's high levels of short bursts of chat. Right, okay, so we're losing the thing that powers creativity. In addition, people are feeling lonely. Right, all of these things are broken. Hmm. But what happens is we assess life from a micro level, right? We assess life from sitting in front of our laptops. And so we survey the job to be done. And the job to be done is we've got 100 emails. So going over and chatting to Dara, going over chatting to Helen feels like an unnecessary diversion from the job we've got to do. The end result is we're feeling overwhelmed, lonely, unhappy, dot, dot, dot. Science suggests we're less creative as a result. The other thing you talked about was the smoothie delusion by these guys, Baron Richard Laird and Bill Griffin. And I was first of all wondering about whether you can tell me who these guys are and what you uncovered about benefits and their relationship or lack thereof to workplace satisfaction. Yeah, Bill Griffin's one of the most entertaining people that you'll ever have the, the good fortune to meet. And, and I guess his take on life is micro happiness. So his take is how can improve happiness one act of kindness at a time. And Baron Layard is probably the most eminent British economist. He's worked with a succession of prime ministers for the last three decades. And his job is macro happiness. How can we make the entirety of all of us happier? And the thing that came out of that episode is the system that we've got, which is we try and make people happier at work by giving them things. Hey, guys, we've brought beers around at five o'clock on a Thursday. Uh -huh. Hey guys, we've bought everyone a smoothie. Good news, everyone. These cakes sitting in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of these things we think make people happy. And yeah, they do. They, they make people happier in the short term, but they're palliative. They don't make people happier in any significant sense in the long term. And so I think the, the critical thing for all of us is how can we get past the idea that happiness is smoothies? If you search the best companies in the world to work at. What you'll find is one or two companies that are very good at capturing brilliant photography of their slide, of their smoothies, of their cycle to work days. And they capture things like that. None of those things correlate with people being happier at work. Hmm. And having worked in one or two of those places, I know that what creates happiness 
isn't necessarily what people give to you. It's the, what you do at work. You know, you, we're happier when we've done something, not when we've been given something. The other thing you talked about, Bruce, was this concept of the production process for happiness with Paul Dolan. What exactly is that? And what did you uncover about the production process for happiness? So Paul Dolan said that his revelation was that the production process for happiness was happiness is a direct output of what you pay attention to. And it's interesting. I saw someone tweet the other day about Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, people might be aware, is sort of the father of behavioral economics. And Daniel Kahneman is an incredibly intelligent guy and was at one of the greatest thinkers of, of our lifetime and was asked, of all the, his learning, what was the thing that he regarded as the greatest single lesson? And he said, beware the attention illusion. Hmm. And he said, nothing is as important as it seems while you're paying attention to it. Hmm. Right, so what does that mean? So, you know, you've had an argument with someone or you're worried that this is how you look in certain clothes isn't good. And nothing is as important as it seems when you're paying attention to it. Both of them, they might seem diametrically opposed, but I think they are directly linked to each other, is that, you know, attention can be illusory. It can make us think things are more important, but actually let's pay attention to more important things rather than less important things. Mm -hmm. And so that's like an interesting thing because then you start thinking about what we talked about at the start of this discussion. Is it important whether I've got 100 people reporting to me? Is it important if I've got this title that looks great on my business card? Or is it important that I go to work and I feel stimulated and I laugh? If I laugh 10 times in a day, I'm really thrilled about that. Yeah. And actually, I'd, I'd be much more inclined to choose a job based on that, even though it probably would appear rationally to be a misguided way to make the decision. The other thing I want to talk about before we shift gears and talk about your podcast, Bruce, is one of the episodes that I just listened to on the way over here about rebooting your career. And I know you talk with some really interesting people. You talk with Martin Morales about how he left the music industry to open a restaurant that he'd always dreamed of. Lisa Unwin about how women can return to the workplace after having children. What are one or two lessons that you learned about what it takes to successfully relaunch your career from talking with those people? It's very easy for Steve Jobs or one of the Spice Girls or a famous actor to say, I just did what I was passionate about. And for each one of those people, there are 10,000 people who did what they were passionate about and got nowhere. So I think, you know, there's, there's a danger that we can follow the winners and we can end up with advice that's of, of no value. So I'm sort of cautious about things like that. I saw a quote by Benjamin Disraeli today. So I scribbled it down because I saw it somewhere, uh -huh. which slightly conflicts with what I said. But the, the quote is, we're only truly great when we act from our passions. So I think, you know, there's, there's a balance to be struck. I don't think you necessarily succeed just because you're following your passions. But if you've got a degree of passion and excitement to what you end up doing, it probably motivates you and propels you a little bit further. Were there any sort of characteristics that you noticed about these people that allowed them to feel as if they could switch gears. The tenacity, the sort of the grit, the determination to keep going mm -hmm. when things probably aren't going well is probably the, the abiding part, I suspect. And what about you? What, what do you think has allowed you to be able to make the pivots in your career? Because you have had some changes and some shifts along the way. You, you mentioned the layoff earlier make, being made redundant. 
what's allowed you to just keep going and not really get too bothered by any of those sort of sudden shifts? The only quality I've got is probably a degree of tenacity stroke optimism. In a room of 20 people, I'm probably the middle in terms of talent. Okay. Certainly, I've, I've got no things that I stand out at. I've probably got a short attention span, and that has a strong advantage. If I'm looking at a presentation, my view is people are bored. Entertain them, stimulate them, mm. move on. When I first came here, we ran a lot of events. The team would ask me, the first event I ran myself, like start to finish, I ran everything. And we finished that day and I said, yeah, that was a four out of 10. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> what? Four out of 10? That was better than four out of 10. And I said, when we do an eight out of 10, you'll come back to me and you'll say, that was four out of 10. That disadvantage where I've got a short attention span, I'm sometimes ungenerous with regards to my own work or other people's work as well. But, you know, that means that you can hopefully see it through other people's eyes. Last question for you before we talk about your podcast, Bruce. When you think about your own career and you look at what you know now, is there something that you had wished you had known a few years ago? If you've got the desire to try and capture people's attention in an entertaining way, that gets you three quarters of the way there. So I got my first job at Capital Radio. I finished university. I was unemployed for about a year in Birmingham. And so after a year being unemployed, I started drawing this cartoon CV. I drew this four-page resume of my life in, in sort of very bad cartoon. Changed the first square so it looked like I'd done it for each job I sent it to. I sent it to 50 companies. And the response I got was extraordinary. So that taught me a lesson. A guy when I was at YouTube sent us a video CV. It wasn't the best video CV I've ever seen. But man, you have a look at that now. It's online if you search YouTube TV. I think it's had like 100,000 views. Wow. Getting people's attention is the hardest thing. Once you've got people's attention and you've put a smile on their face, it's amazing how people will fight your corner. Well, let's talk about your podcast. I know we've been touching on it, but can you just tell us a little bit more, Bruce, about Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, your podcast, which is focused on happiness and work culture, some of the topics when you look ahead that you plan to cover. I know you've touched on a few already. Yeah. So this season, I'm really keen to do two things. I'm keen to keep exploring what is the root cause of happiness and stimulation and motivation at work. And then I want to try and unpick the things that are destroying that. I hate nostalgia. and I don't think the, the world before was any better than today. I think my phone is like this magical creation I, I <laughs> totally adore it i've got a, you know an immensely fond emotional connection with my phone so i don't think there's anything bad about technological advance however i'm fascinated with how we can improve work so it just doesn't feel overwhelming people's half of all people who check their email outside of work exhibit high levels of stress but I think the solution has to lie within us. It has to lie in enlightened businesses thinking about how they can make the people at work be better. And so I'm in awe of people like Tony Schwartz. Tony Schwartz is a world best-selling writer. He's had a book that sat right at the top of the US bestsellers for a year. But then he's gone on and he's created something called The Energy Project. And one of his things, again, is a simple hack. And it's his campaign is Take Back Your Lunch. And because how many of us now sit at our desks, chewing through a pret-a-manger sandwich, thinking, pecking away at emails, <laughs> one-handed while we eat, thinking that 
somehow we're reducing the amount of work. And all of the evidence says if you go away from your desk, I met a brilliant woman called Laura Archer that had turned this into a sort of a book, a manifesto. But if you go away from your desk for an hour, you achieve way more in the last three or four hours of the day than you would have if you'd worked through. I do emails in the evening. And sometimes I find myself sitting there in the evening tapping away at emails. And I think I've done three emails in the last hour. Yeah. Because I'm in such a state of exhaustion that I'm mm. rereading them. Then I'm going to make a drink. Then I'm coming back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there. I'm changing the music. None of that is productivity. Uh-huh. you Far better having an evening where you just go and do exercise or sleep or watch some TV or a movie and come back fresh tomorrow. Yeah. So that's the thing I'm fascinated with, really. Very cool, Bruce. Well, if people want to learn more about these topics and they want to hear more from you, where can they go if they want to tune in to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat? It's on iTunes. There's a website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I just think that these... So many people who love their jobs, and we know that. People who have jobs live longer, they're healthier, they do better. But simultaneously, work is frying our brains. And we need to find a way to capture the best parts of work and push back on the worst parts. Definitely. We'll also include links to your podcast here, Bruce, and I've definitely checked out myself. It's a very interesting, very interesting listen. So thanks so much for telling us about how you manage your own career and drivers of workplace happiness and also a few simple hacks to drive up your own workplace satisfaction. So best of luck with Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat and your work here at Twitter. Thanks so much, Joseph. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Bruce's thoughts on workplace culture, the drivers of happiness in the workplace, and why it's so important to decide what really matters in your career. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'll share one of the realizations I had that got me onto a happier path in my own career. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank Brand Yourself for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Brand Yourself offers simple tools and services to help control what people find when they Google you. To clean up, protect, and improve how you look online, visit brandyourself.com and use promo code RELAUNCH to get 50% off a premium membership. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I want to pick up on something Bruce mentioned about making sure you pay attention to more important things rather than less important things in your career. And I initially thought I'd use this Mental Fuel to talk about how before job titles and what looked good on paper mattered to me and now doing work that makes me feel I'm making a contribution is what really matters. I thought about telling this story because all that's true, but I actually decided to share a more personal story. If you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard me allude to the fact I left medical school to pursue a career in business instead, but I haven't really explained why I decided to become a doctor and go down that path in the first place. I didn't want to become a doctor because my parents pressured me into it. And I liked the idea of helping people, but still, that wasn't my main motivation either. The main reason was because I was trying to serve a need that I thought was important to me, to right a wrong that had happened in my own life. When I was in high school, I used to be a pretty serious tennis player on our high school's varsity team. And during my senior year, in the middle of one match, I suddenly had a really hard time breathing, almost like the wind just got knocked out of me. So I went to the doctor and he diagnosed it as an inflamed sternum. 
He gave me some ibuprofen and I went back to playing tennis, but I never felt like I really ever got my lung capacity back. And I remember not being able to run as fast and telling my coach that it felt like I only had half a lung to work with that used those exact words. I went back to the doctor again and he said there was nothing to worry about. So I kept playing competitive tennis for a couple more weeks. Then in another match, I felt a sharp pain shoot through my chest. And the best way I can describe the sensation was sort of like a big air bubble getting shoved into my chest that needed to pop to get rid of that pressure that it created. So I went in to see the doctor again. He sent me away again, telling me it was just my sternum acting up again. A couple more weeks passed. But by this point in time, I'd been doing my own reading about what I was experiencing and feeling, and I was convinced that I had a collapsed lung. Went to another doctor and asked him specifically whether I might have a collapsed lung. He did a chest x-ray, sent me home, said everything looked normal. Anyway, my condition was misdiagnosed multiple times over the course of two months before I took it upon myself to insist on repeating the chest x-ray, which this time revealed I actually did have a collapsed lung. And because several weeks had passed, the collapse had worsened to the point where they had to perform an emergency chest surgery to reinflate my lung rather than a less invasive needle thoracentesis procedure. I ended up recovering, but the whole ordeal was pretty painful. And in my mind, something that should have never happened. So I decided this was some sign that this all happened as a way for me to have this direct experience as a patient so I could one day be a doctor who really listens to his patients. Now, I'm sharing this story because it illustrates how we can sometimes create a narrative that drives our actions and choices. In my case, I created a narrative that made me think that what was important in my career was to be able to prove I could be a better doctor compared to the doctors I had during this one-off experience, to right this wrong. And that fueled me for many years as I charged toward this goal of becoming a doctor, even though it never really made me that happy. It took me many years to eventually realize that I was building my whole career around proving a point and allowing that to eclipse what really mattered to me. Things like work-life balance, entrepreneurship, and creativity. Those very things that made me happy and eventually led me away from a career in medicine toward a career in business and later public speaking instead. So sometimes I cross paths with clients or audience members who share a career goal with me premised on something they find really important. Just last week, I had an audience member tell me, I want to become a CEO one day. And my immediate question I asked her back was, why is that so important to you? And she said, well, prestige and visibility. And I asked her, okay, why is prestige so important to you? Why does being visible matter so much to you? This gets me back to the point Bruce made about making sure you pay attention to more important things rather than less important things in your career. And ultimately, this is a really personal choice. That's why sometimes it's useful to stop, think, and decide what truly matters to you and go one step further. Ask yourself why this matters to you and keep asking why so you can at least be 100% clear on what's driving your actions. This takes me to a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes us happy. So my challenge to you is to identify one of your career goals and write down why it's so important to you to accomplish that. Is that still important to you? If so, great. But if not, 
maybe it's time to consider focusing on something else that's more important to you. So you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm done chasing this other thing. What I really want now is to have more of this so I can just be truly and finally happy. Before we wrap up, because this is the one-year anniversary episode, I just wanted to thank a couple people who have played a big part in this podcast over the past year. First, wanted to give a shout-out to Richard Pennington in London, who's been my trusty producer and sound engineer for the show. If you like how this show sounds over your speakers or headphones, I owe a lot of this to Richard. I also wanted to thank Hidemi Takagi, based in Tokyo, who's designed all the episode artwork featured on the Career Relaunch Instagram feed. Finally, I also wanted to say thank you to Anne in Washington, D.C., who's one of my listeners who makes a monthly monetary donation to Career Relaunch, in her case since last September when the show first started. It's very kind of you to be so generous. I self-fund this show, and over the past year, I've invested thousands of dollars into this podcast to create a high-quality show, and each additional episode cost me quite a bit to create between the editing, hosting, creation, design, other fees, and production. So I very much appreciate your support, Anne, and your contribution really helps me keep this podcast going. If you also find these stories helpful to your own career journey and you've gained value from listening to Career Relaunch, I'd very much welcome your monetary donation to support my podcast at careerrelaunch.net slash donate, where you can make a one-time donation or monthly donation. Every single contribution I get, both big and small, helps me keep this podcast going. So thanks in advance for your generosity. And again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash donate. As always, you can also get a summary and all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash episode 26. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community and a special thanks again to Bruce Daisley for joining us today. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song in Sicily, Italy. I'm Joseph Liu and I'll see you next time.